Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This podcast is being recorded on Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Last night, 400,000 Israelis came out on the street in protest against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. In a small country like Israel, that's a huge figure. The equivalent in the U.S. would be around 14 million. These demos have been going on for more than a month. Initially, the protests were against proposed legislation that would effectively end the independence of Israel's judiciary and remove the only meaningful check on executive power. Then, a week ago, in retaliation for the murder of two Israeli settlers in the West Bank, religious Zionists went on a rampage in the Arab town of Hawara, burning houses and killing one person in revenge. Major General Yehuda Fuchs, a senior commander in the Israeli military, described the mob attack as a pogrom, a word no Jew uses lightly. The challenge to Israeli courts' independence was not unexpected, nor has the increase in West Bank violence since Prime Minister Netanyahu's coalition includes religious Zionists Bezalel Smotrich and Itmar ben Gavir, men with a history of anti-Arab incitement and participation in violence. As the 75th anniversary of the founding of Israel approaches, the country has never been more divided. I decided to ask Ksenia Svetlova, former member of the Knesset from 2015 to 2019, who worked with Netanyahu and Smotrich, about what is happening in Israel right now, and also about the Jewish diaspora, of which she was a member, before making Aliyah and moving to Israel in the early 1990s. I began by asking her about last night's demonstration. Well, I actually went yesterday to my hometown in Modi'in. And uh, I can tell you that although it's a small city, and it's certainly you know not the size of the demonstration that we have in Tel Aviv now or Haifa, uh, I believe that in the recent weeks, the number of uh, protesters had doubled itself. We started with just a few hundred, and then it turned into 2,000. I think a couple of weeks ago it was 2,000. According to the um, information that we received from the organizers, we had over 4,000 uh, yesterday in Modin. And Modin, uh, it's for uh, those who are not aware of its existence, it's a small city between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. It's basically, it's a sleeping town, you know. Uh, people sleep there, <laughs> raise their families, but work uh, elsewhere. Uh, and usually it's very quiet. Uh, so it's very unusual to have this uh, size of a crowd in front of the house of the justice minister, Yariv Levin. So that's why this demonstration is important. And when I'm not in Tel Aviv, I always join the demonstration in Modi'in uh, because I need, I think that uh, it's important that the protest will be everywhere, not just in the state of Tel Aviv, uh, how the uh, its critics uh, refer to it, but also, you know, just across the country from north to south. These started just after Netanyahu formed this government, or did they start uh, immediately after he proposed this law that would effectively neuter the courts? Uh, it started uh, when he um, announced, and uh, his members of his government and coalition announced that they are about to introduce uh, this uh, package of legislation. I really, uh, you know, prefer not to call it a reform. Reform is supposed to be something good and uh, not something that brings us uh, 
you know, to a place that where Israel have never been before, actually, to a authoritarian state. So yes, it started uh, when uh, the the reforms, uh, the legislations were announced. For my listeners, could you explain what these not reforms, even though he calls them reforms, yes. to the judicial system are about? You know, the first of all, I think it's important to understand the frame. So we have uh, a prime minister who is now uh, going a few weeks, a few times in a week to court uh, because he is standing to a court of law for free uh, accusations. And there was an indictment and uh, there were protests also back then uh, when he declared that he will continue serving as a PM despite this absurd situation. So we have a prime minister who is waging a campaign, vicious campaign against the judiciary for the last, I would say exactly since 2016. So it's been almost seven years now. He's waging this crusade against the uh, judges, against the lawyers, against the, you know, all of the judicial system and itself. And now when he has this ultra right uh, wing and religious government and coalition with nobody, to protest uh, against this, he started with uh, basically uh, dismantling our judicial system. Okay. This what, what, is, what are the charges against him? Well, I need to find words in English, but it's bribe, uh, breaching of trust, and fraud. And fraud. So free charges. It's not just one law that would put an end to the independence of the judiciary. But two most important uh, parts of it. Uh, first of all, it's the changing of the components uh, of the committee for election of judges. With the proposed legislation, government will get 100% control of over who the judges are and will be able to basically form and shape the judiciary and uh, who will be there according to its beliefs and uh, goals. This is first. The second one, uh, it's the um, weakening of the status of the Supreme Court. A again, according to the proposed legislation, the Supreme Court would not be able to overrule legislation if it deemed uh, not to be constitutional. So uh, if now, for example, somebody wants to pass a bill that uh, will allow the shop owners to discriminate against, let's say, LGBT, uh, women, Arabs, other minorities, due to religious views uh, of the shopkeepers, the Supreme Court, of course, will overturn uh, this kind of legislation. Uh, after this, you know, this uh, dismantling uh, of the judiciary will happen, the only body that will be responsible for promoting and or, or you know, uh, limiting uh, this kind of legislation would be uh, the government and the Knesset themselves. And in Israel, there is no separation, really, uh, between the government and the parliament, unlike in other states. So it means that there is only one body that will be fully uncontrolled and would be able to wage, you know, whatever ideas uh, that uh, they want and to promote them uh, into Israeli laws. Right. So this is like the end of, of separation of, of powers, the kind of checks and balances that we have in America. But also, I mean, it's it seems to me that to be a member in good standing of most democratic organ states organizations you have to at least have a separate judiciary to put mm -hmm. a check on the executive and what netanyahu is doing is he's proposed this legislation that would completely neutralize the independence of israel's courts and perhaps coincidentally it makes it easier for him to avoid 
being charged on fraud and bribery. The abstention, and uh, they, of course, in the coalition, they some of them deny it. Others already do not deny it. Uh, you know, this is the unbelievable thing that, uh, you know, basically he implies that the judiciary were plotting against him along with the opposition. So it's a lot, uh, there, it's not only uh, an attempt, you know, to weaken the judiciary, uh, it's also based on this very crazy uh, conspiracy theory uh, that uh, there is this mighty deep state and that he, Netanyahu, has to dismantle his this, this deep state to truly rule uh, the uh, Israeli nation as he's supposed to 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 do. I like the, that you use the word rule, not govern. Rule. This is exactly what I mean. Rule. Because, you know, I, I know that sometimes his supporters chant Bibi HaMelech, which means mm-hmm. Bibi the king. And uh, I confess in my Twitter world, I refer to him as Bibi HaMelech, but it's ironic. Yeah. But there is an element of him that thinks there should be a one ruler of the Jewish state, and he is it. And that's what it seems like from a distance. You know, for years, uh, we observed how Netanyahu is getting closer and closer with non-democratic states, that he takes pride, his uh, friendship with Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, other leaders around the world, and that he basically tried to drive a wedge in Europe by getting closer to the Visegrad uh, states, uh, Poland and uh, Hungary. Uh, and uh, But at the time when it happened, I remember it very well, uh, because it was during my term in the Knesset, between 2015 and 19, this rapprochement took place. Uh, even then, there were red lines, even then. For example, Netanyahu government uh, in 2016, they uh, boycotted uh, the Austrian far-right government uh, led uh, by Sebastian Kurtz, uh, there were still red lines. And we never imagined at that moment, I can truly tell you, uh, because we were discussing this, that apparently he enjoys friendship with non-democratic uh, allies. Why is that? Why is that? Uh, it seems that he found an easier language, easy communication with them. And perhaps he also got the idea that also Israel can be like Hungary, like Poland. Only the only problem is that we are not part of the European Union and we do not have democratic neighbors also. So our situation is unique and entirely different. So when you were a, a member of the Knesset, and, and as you tell listeners, we met, I think, just just after you had been elected. And so you dealt with people in the Likud party. Did you also deal with some of these extreme, smaller fringe parties that he's brought into the coalition? religious Zionist parties, and given them important domestic security portfolios. Did you deal with those guys? Well, I've, uh, me and uh, Bezalel Smutrich, who is currently a minister of finance, what a career, <laughs> and just mm-hmm. in eight years, and he's a young, young guy. It was the first Knesset for me and for him. And I observed him closely because it was unimaginable at this time that a person like him will become a member of Knesset. Somebody who uh, organized uh, these uh, beast parades against the LGBT community. And uh, there was a suspicion that perhaps they, according to the Shinbet, that uh, during the disengagement from Gaza, uh, he planned to perform this terrorist attack and so on. You know, this is again, according to the heads of the Shabak, <laughs> we are not inventing this stuff. Uh, I watched him very closely and I saw a very smart guy who learned very quickly 
who also came with this action plan, like what needs to be done to promote the end goal. End goal for Smutrich, for Ben Greer, is the annexation of the West Bank. So you cannot do it just, you know, just like, like this. You can do, put it on the table and say, listen, we want to annex the West Bank. So also the Likud party would stop it. And they indeed, they stopped it each time, you know, when they wanted to annex Jordan Valley or Mali Adumim. Uh, you know, it was the Likud party that, uh, that stopped it. So what do you do? You make the situation in the West Bank impossible to, to, to cut, to, to disengage. So you build more roads for the settlers only. You increase the uh, illegal uh, settlement, uh, uh, settlement activities. You uh, give all the support and the budgets uh, that you can to the illegal organizations. Uh, and you basically give the backing to the armed militias of the settlers who uh, somehow they are called the youth of the hilltop. They are not youth. Uh, and there is no, uh, you know, the, the only true uh, word there is hilltop. Yes, they want to control the hilltops, of course, uh, to threaten the Arabs from there. But in, indeed, uh, what he plans to do now, when he reached this place of influence, not only in the Ministry uh, of Finance, but also in the Ministry of Defense, when he got control, the civilian control uh, over the West Bank, uh, it's making the separation impossible. He's extremely dangerous. And now a reminder. FRDH is an independent production. I need the financial support of my listeners to keep it going. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com or the FRDH SoundCloud page and make a donation. Thanks. And now, back to my conversation with Ksenia Svetlova. Israel has two very important anniversaries this year. The first is coming in May. It's the 75th anniversary of the founding of the state which should be a happy celebration, but it's not entirely, we can come back, we can talk about this some more if you want, but it seems it may not be the happiest celebration because you've got two months to pull the country together and it's quite split apart. But the other anniversary is it's the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, the October War in 1973, which was in the first days of that war, as close as Israel has come to defeat, And out of that war, the Likud party was formed. And I remember, you know, from the late 70s, early 80s, when Menachem Begin first became prime minister, he spoke of facts on the ground, building facts on the ground in Samaria, the West Bank. And that was 40 years ago, a little bit more than 40 years ago. So now this seems like it's a a continuation of this policy, but in a more aggressive way. Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, uh, I wish that I could put all of the blame on the other side. Yes, it's the Likud. But the party that gave legitimation for the Gushe Munim movement in the early 70s and allowed this, uh, it was the Labour Party. And it's undeniable. Uh, so uh, why did they do it? Uh, because they thought that, it's, you know, it's on the margins, it's not that important. And perhaps it's a good thing that we will have some stronghold there for future negotiations. But you know, uh, you're you talking about 40 years. For, from what I know, and I live in Israel for 32 years now. To this year, I will celebrate 32 years. Uh, I saw increase, increase in everything in the last, I would say, 15 years. Because it was already post-Oslo, it was post-disengagement. A disengagement was a very strong motive for people like Smutrich, like Benkberg, to take their revenge. And if you're analyze carefully their statements today 
in the committee for legislation and uh, in the cabinet and so on, they are dri- driven by revenge, the sense of revenge. They had to give up Bushkatif, uh, and they understand that, you know, basically uh, there could be some scenario uh, in which uh, Israel would uh, vote and would go for this very difficult uh, but necessary solution, disengaging from the West Bank, or at least large large part of it. They want to make it impossible, yes? So whatever, you know, uh, Begin at the time, and uh, but also Paris, leaders of uh, the labor as well, they thought that it would be temporary, it would be good for our security somehow. Uh, it became a double soft. Uh, it's uh, something that is killing us right now. I mean, is, is the idea to have ethnic cleansing, make life so miserable in the West Bank for several million Palestinian Arabs to, that they say, all right, we leave. We'll just go over the other side of the Jordan River into the state of Jordan. We'll go up into Lebanon or we'll just join our cousins in Canada or wherever, you know, our family has moved to. I mean, do they really think they can ethnically cleanse that many people? Well, uh, you know, um, it seems that neither the Likud party, by the way, they do not have this final kind of like picture, an image of what is it that do you want to have here? How things should be working? And but also, of course, the Ben Gvirist types, Kahana types, uh, Kahana supporters, and so on. Also, they uh, they don't have like realistic plans. I mean, they are talking about it, but uh, from what I uh, have seen, uh, it's uh, very you know you know uh, far fetched, and it's very um, uh, unconnected to the reality, basically. Uh, so. Uh, they say, well, yes, you know, so we will, Smutrich said it many times at the Knesset, those who are not loyal to the state, the state that they are not citizens in, they should go, like, how exactly, how do you want them to go, by bus? <laughs> uh, will you take them by a horse? I don't know, like, how do you suggest you will do it? How will you force it on Jordan? And who would want to go? Because, you know, uh, the Palestinians, they have this uh, concept of smooth uh, against all odds. And they are doing it pretty much, you know, since uh, 48. You know, they cling to this uh, steadfast. Life is getting worse for them all the time. Look at Gaza. Nobody's going anywhere. And uh, so I don't think that they really truly realize, but I think that they feel that if there will be a third intifada, which is basically around the corner, right? We have this uh, wave of violence time after another, and uh, everybody's talking about third intifada. So third intifada happens when you have a leadership. There must be Palestinian leadership that would take control and say, listen, you know, that's what we are doing. We have arms, we have this, we have other means. This is what we are doing. For now, it doesn't exist. But if at some point in the future, it will happen so that there will be some armed resistance again, you know, that will be organized, that will look like the second or the first Intifada. I think that they want to take this, to use this opportunity in order to, yes, to stimulate, uh, you know, another Nagba. And uh, again, Smutrich is talking openly about it, that Ben-Gurion did not finish uh, its, his work. Uh, yeah. And many people, many people believe in this as well. I read this in the Israeli press, and it's a constant refrain, that Ben-Gurion, some, some kind of pacifist, which is news to me, but there you go, that he had failed to do what he should have done. Mm-hmm. And to me, that this makes no sense. It also makes a mockery of, the 40 years of negotiation and whatever and policy of the outside world towards Israel and what Israel has said its goals are. But you you know, you 
just now you were talking about the Likud party and you, you were uh, reminding me and listeners about some of this settlement policy actually goes back to the days when Israel's Labour Party was always winning the election, always forming governments. And I just wonder, do you think that Netanyahu actually in somehow secretly agrees with these hard right religious Zionists he's brought into government? Or did he think he was willing to make a short-term deal with them so he could reform the judiciary and not have to face jail if he's convicted of bribery and fraud? Or do you think that there's a part of him now that kind of agrees the West Bank should become part of greater Israel? From what I know, from what I heard from him also being a member of the Committee for Foreign Affairs and Defense, he uh, supports the status quo, which, in other words, is crippling annexation. Because what does it mean to have a status quo where Israel continues to expand? Maybe not you know, so fast, but still, you know, the settlements are growing and you have more. And, uh, you know, some of them are illegal, but after like five, ten years, they become legal, you know. So basically, it's not a real status quo, isn't it? So I think that he would never admit that he agrees with somebody like Ben Gvir and Smutrich. I think that he is afraid of them uh, because he cannot control them, really. They are too ideological for them. You know, he can sell whatever he wants to the his Likud uh, party members, but he really cannot sell, you know, this uh, BS uh, to guys like Smutrich and Bergman because they mean business. Mm. Uh, so he agrees with them on some point that they should not be they should not be Oslo uh, bet. Okay, so there is there is no room uh, for something like this, and it would be best to keep the PA, uh, you know, as a body that is weak. Uh, you can also offend it at any time. You can criticize it, but still, it takes care of the civilian business. So it's not good to do something that will compromise uh, its uh, existence, but also not to make it too strong that it will be seen by the world as an able partner. Okay, Benkvir and Smutrich, they don't mind the, you know, the dirty work. They don't mind the violence. They would want to, you know, make this uh, even come closer, to hasten it, uh, you know, so they don't want the current status quo. It's not good enough for them. So they are taking it the next level. And actually... You know, it is, it's, it's, it's clear why it's happening. Because if you have somebody like Netanyahu who makes all of these promises of, uh, you know, I will cripple the Hamas, I will uh, uh, annex the West Bank. He said it three years ago in 2020. So why shouldn't they, you know, so why shouldn't they take it to a far right end and to talk about things that many people are thinking inside, but they're just afraid to voice them out that we should be banishing Arabs uh, from, uh, you know, here. We should uh, make them go away, that Jordan is the Palestinian state, you know. So, yes, you know, so you, you do have many Israelis that they thought that until recently it's not okay to say it, but it seems that, uh, you know, the you know the, the society becomes more right-wing uh, and uh, these kind of things become more acceptable because you hear it from your members of the Knesset, uh, you know, at the Israeli parliament. Let me just slightly shift things around here, because I'm still in the diaspora. And you came from the diaspora. You came from Soviet... You, you grew up in the Soviet Union, I but the country you left was Russia, or was it still the Soviet Union when you left? It was exactly, uh, you know, in the moment when uh, 
Soviet Union was collapsing already, but technically I left the Soviet Union. It collapsed after a few months. So what knowledge did you have of Israel and of being Jewish when you were growing up? So um, when I was about seven, one of the kids at school used the word Zhidovka uh, about me. Zhidovka? Zhidovka, you know, in Polish uh, it means Jew, but in Russian it means dirty Jew, something like this, you know, so there is a bad connotation. I didn't know what it means. So I came to my grandmother, whose family uh, all perished in the Holocaust, and she told me, listen, it means that you're a Jew, and you should know that you're a Jew, but you are not allowed to talk about it outside. So you, you have this knowledge and deal with it, basically, okay? And being a family that, well, you know, after the Holocaust, uh, grandmother never spoke another word in Yiddish. I never mentioned any of the Jewish uh, rituals or holidays or anything like this. It was a normal, typical uh, atheist uh, Soviet family, you know. So I knew that my nationality is Jewish because it was also written so in our passports. We had this, the fifth call, the fifth uh, uh, part of the passport, you know, the nationality was written, Belarusian, Ukrainian, Jew. So for us, it was Jew. But what that, does it mean? I, I couldn't relate to anything. I was reading the effect Wangers, the uh, Judean war, <laughs> you know, trying to get some knowledge, you know, and I understood nothing, absolutely. So when my mother decided that uh, we are making Aliyah to Israel, she took the decision in 1990, and by 1991, uh, we landed in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, I knew absolutely nothing. I knew more about ancient Egypt, which was al also always my passion. Uh, then about modern Israel. There were no sources for me to draw the knowledge from. So, uh, yeah, you know, I came and I uh, started started to go to religious school for girls, <laughs> actually pro-settler one, uh, so in Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, so it was an um, experience when you basically get, you know, like you you feel like you are a baby. Uh, you have to, to study everything, it's language, it's culture, it's ideology, policy, uh, everything, you know, so... Uh, this was a unique experience, I would say, yes. When did you start to take on Israeli identity? Or have you? I mean, maybe you have a unique a unique Ksenia identity, which mm -hmm. is internationalist and it's part Soviet and part Israeli. Well, definitely not Soviet. Yes, international and yes, also Jewish and yes, also Israeli and leftist. There are many other components. But, you know, um, uh, I cannot tell exactly when it happened that, you know, I felt like, well, you know, I'm an Israeli. I'm not a foreigner in this country. But maybe in some sense, all of us who came from abroad are a little bit of, you, you continue to be foreigner. Uh, you, are, you were not born here. And people also remind it to you all the time. Uh, the name is uh, foreign. There's some accent. Uh, the heritage, you know, it's different. Uh, but I think that um, during the years of the Second Intifada, this was in, when, around uh, the year 2000. It sounds like yes. You know, I was a student at the Hebrew University and I was taking the bus. I didn't have my driving license yet. And it was a moment when you feel, yes, it's this very painful moments of terror, of death, blood, uh, when you feel, yes, I am a part of this country. And uh, if something will happen to me, then yes, absolutely. You know, it's happening because I'm a part of this country. I'm a, And I choose to be here. I cho choose to stay here. I do not, do not leave to study abroad or something like this, you know, like many of my friends do. It wasn't, yes, it was, I think that was this moment of pain uh, when you feel that you're associated with this place more than you ever thought. You know, it, it's interesting because my experience of desert, I'm an American Jew, and, you know, when I was a kid 
because I'm older than you, right? I can remember in the 1950s as a boy at Hebrew school, you know, you, you go to your aunts and uncles and your grandparents to get, you know, 50 cents or a dollar or whatever so you can plant a tree in Israel. And they they go to their Israel bond drives. And that's that was our, this is the formative relationship to Israel. And now, you know, the diaspora is confused, I think. It's difficult for American Jews to talk about it out loud, because to be critical of anything that happens in Israel is seen to be self-hating. You hate yourself if you hate Israel. Critical of Israel, don't hate Israel. What do you think the diaspora's role should be at this moment when, you know, last night on the 4th of March, nearly 5% of the country was in the street demonstrating. That's a lot. And I wonder what role the diaspora has in uh, in talking to Israelis, in taking sides in, in the what's being disputed here. Um, so, you know, I think that there is this duality uh, in relations between Israel and the diaspora, yes, because we love the diaspora when they support us and uh, when they uh, celebrate something with us or, you know, help us financially. And we love to tell that, uh, you know, Israel is a, is a country of the Jewish people and every Jew should be, uh, you know, feel welcome here and so on. But many Jews already do not feel welcome here. So apparently, you know, during the years, this country grew into something that is, it is a Jewish state, but it's not a state for all Jews. And I think it's time to remind, you know, that uh, there is a reason, you know, why why the state that was born from the ashes of the Holocaust promised to be the national uh, home uh, for each and every Jew, whether they want to live here or they want to be abroad and just to be in some form of a relationship with it and so on, and that it's based around the Jewish values. And that racism is not part of the Jewish values. It cannot be. You know, if we are talking about self-hating Jews, then, well, it's not the Jews that criticize Israel, I think. It's the Jews that uh, right now call, uh, you know, death to Arabs and let's burn Hawara, you know, so because they are going, it's, you know, going exactly after the all of the Jewish values that kept us during so many years. And, you know, I when I see 120 communities in the U.S. saying no to Bezalel Smutrich's visit in the U.S. and they decline to meet with him, it warms my heart because I feel support. I'm an Israeli. Uh, why don't I, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, can get some support uh, from the diaspora? People like me, we want to feel uh, also, you know, that there are brethren uh, outside and uh, especially in the uh, leader of the democratic world in the United States that stand for democratic values. That's the reason why we have this special alliance with the United States. It's not only about security and weapons, uh, because this kind of uh, alliance, uh, you know, U.S. also has with Saudi Arabia or with Egypt or with other countries here in the region. But only with Israel, it has, uh, you know, alliance around common values of democracy. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I do not see, again, you know, it's hard for me uh, to say because, uh, you know, apparently I, I understand that your uh, experience is very different there. And that, yes, uh, you know, uh, you grew in the time when Israel was attacked and it was accused of racism in the UN. And it was a very difficult time and it was time to fight, to fight for Israel. But now again, I think it's time to fight for Israel, for what is really Israel. You know, because there could be many, you know, the, the name can be one, but there could be many faces for the state. If uh, the state will turn out to be 
non-democratic, racist state, apartheid state, would you still support it? Would you still care for it? Only because it's called Israel? It will definitely inflict pain. But I think it's not uh, you know, enough to justify just uh, his, uh, you know, this uh, wide support to whatever Israel will do. I think there should be a red line there. We could end right there. That's a good ending point. Thank you, Ksenia Svetlova. Thank you time. for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Ksenia Svetlova, who's currently the executive director of the NGO Regional Organization for Peace, Economics, and Security. And remember, please go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation. Thanks.